thanks again, as always, for listening. I appreciate anybody who listens to even one episode, and I appreciate everyone who's listened to so many. You keep me going. I'm so excited to share that now official on Patreon. You can find my Patreon page, become a member. It's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. Again, that's patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My name, of course, is P-E-T-E-R-R-I-E-H-L. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will Podcast Peter Real. You can become a member today. The page is officially launched. There are three tiers of membership. Official patron membership tier is $3 a month. And with that, you'll get access to all interview episodes when they're published, mostly on Tuesdays with some published on Fridays. There are two to four interviews published each month. Lastly, you'll receive the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations, literary event calendar, and the Chills at Will podcast news, and you'll get a shout-out on a future episode. That is the official patron tier of membership for $3 a month. There's the $5 a month for the all-access patron. With the all-access patron membership, you'll have access to all new interview episodes. Each month, like I said, there are two to four interview episodes. You'll get access to those as well as a monthly bonus episode or two that is an interview or an exploration of themes through two or three texts. One example would be an episode that I did called Righteous and Justified Anger that was explored through the works by Langston Hughes and Ralph Ellison or The Power of Flashback was one episode which explored the endings of The Godfather Part 2 sleepers and that was then this is now with the all access patron membership you'll also receive a refrigerator magnet with the chills at will podcast logo and the monthly newsletter with reading recommendations literary event calendar and the chills at will podcast news you will get a shout out on a future episode too with the vip patron tier which is ten dollars a month you'll get access to all episodes a monthly newsletter with reading suggestions and a calendar of literary events and updates on the Chills at Will podcast, access to a monthly AMA, Ask Me Anything, and a t-shirt with the Chills at Will podcast logo. There are two to four monthly episodes and one or two bonus episodes, which are interviews or discussions of themes as seen through multiple texts. VIP patrons will also receive a special shout-out on a future episode. I encourage you to please join Patreon for the Chills at Will podcast. As I say all the time, this is truly a labor of love. This is truly a DIY operation. I started in April of 2020, and it has been an absolute pleasure. 99.999% fun. I've gone to interview people like Disha Filia, what? Matt Bell. Brandon Hobson, Luis Alberto Orrea, Jean Guerrero, Gustavo Arellano, Taylor Bias, Gabby Bates, Alice Elliott Dark, Nadia Owusu, and so, so, so many more. Did I say Jess Walter? Did I say Jeff Perlman? Ingrid Rojas Contreras, Jamil John Cochai, Morgan Talty, Sadie Shore Parks. 
Rachel Yoder, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal, Kirsten Chen, Sam Quinones, Ion Grillo, Raina Kelly, Zach Harper, Michael Torres, Tracy Cato Kirayama, S.J. Sindhu, Roberto Lovato, Todd Goldberg, Steph Cha, Noel Kassler, Reina Grande, James Tate Hill, Navdeep Dylan Singh, Nikisha Elise Williams, Mia St. John, Susan Muladi Daraj, Sarah Borjas, and the list goes on and on. Future episodes include conversations with Allegra Hyde, with Justin Tinsley, Jose Antonio Vargas, Kai Harris, Laura Worrell, so, so, so many cool people. Patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. What are you waiting for? See you over there. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 164 of the Chills of Will podcast. Pleasure today to be joined by Yasmin Ramirez and a little bit about Yasmin. Yasmin Ramirez is a 2021 Martha's Institute of Creative Writing author fellow, as well as a 2020 recipient of the Woody and Gail Hunt Aspen Institute Fellowship Award. Her fiction slash creative nonfiction works have appeared in Cream City Review and Wisache, among others. She is an associate professor of English, creative writing, and Chican X literature at El, El Paso Community College. She stays active in the Borderplex arts community and serves on the advisory board of Border Senses, a literary nonprofit. Her memoir, Andale Prieta, by Lee and Lowe Books, is now available. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited oh, for this conversation. I'm excited to talk to you. Andale Prieta is such a such an incredible read. So like, you know, it's got the exclamation points. Like, am I, is it like, andale prieta? Like, you know what I mean? Where's the emotion or where's the stress? Like, I think, uh, and you know, in the book, it's said three different ways. And each time it's an exclamation point, but it's kind of, there's like, andale prieta, like, come on. Okay. And then there's andale prieta, like, like get it, like, get to it. Mm. <laughs> so it's like, it has that sort of, oh my God, I forgot the word in English. I was going to say doble sentido in Spanish, like the double meaning. There double we go. meaning. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or triple meaning, right? Shoot. It's yes, like, yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> it's, my, I have very limited Italian skills, but I know prego is like that. Prego is you're welcome. De nada. Prego means everything. Like, here you go. Like, ya in Espanol, right? Ya could mean. Yes. Like, ya. That's listo. Like, let's go. Yeah. Andale Prieta. Okay. You know, like I was talking about before we started recording, there's there's a tour you got coming up, um, like in promotion, et cetera. Sounds fun. And like, shout it out. Like, where are you going to be? 
people will be hearing this probably uh, February 3rd. So tell us what's coming up. Definitely. Yeah. I'm going to be doing um, a couple like a balance of virtual events and in-person events. So the virtual, the first event I have coming up is actually virtual um, with Washington, um, a branch of Washington library. The the mm. link will, is actually already on my, my website and you can access okay. it and register. And then I have a couple in, in town events here in El Paso at UTEP, ironically, both at UTEP, but different events. Uh, okay. And then um, doing a book club actually towards the end of the month with Las Comadres as well. Oh, cool. So, you know, it's Yasmin with an S. Is it just yasminramirez.com? Yes. Yeah. Yasminramirez.com. Um, also, like Instagram is something I probably use the most of, and that's mm-hmm. Yasmin Ramirez, right? That's my handle. Okay. And I have a little link tree um, in my bio oh, where nice. everything can be accessed there. Okay. Cool. 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 Any, any particular like bookstores you would say like, Hey, if you're going to buy it, um, buy Andale Prieta, like good place to buy it. So I'm going to shout out. Oh God. There's so many great books <laughs> that you just put me in a weird spot. <laughs> oh, no. oh, okay. No. <laughs> There's a lot of really wonderful, um, bookstores that have my book right now. Um, I'm a big proponent of shopping local yeah. or shopping small business. Yeah. So, um, I have also some, some bookstores linked up on, um, I've showcased them on my in- social media and then I have a local bookstore that's linked on my website where they okay. have signed copies. So oh. I'm not going to say any names, but there's all, it's all yeah, over the yeah, place. Yeah, that, right. that way I don't get in trouble for I'll missing one. Favorites. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, people who are listening, like, what are you doing? Like pause it, pause it for a minute, go to yashminramirez.com, buy the book, check out the tour. You know, we'll be waiting when you come back. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love to uh, I love to start to talk you know talk about the beginning in the book you talk about like you know the rebellious phase a lot of us had like 13 14 ish right where you know you weren't always maybe doing the right thing but you were reading like crazy it sounds like so like then or even earlier like what was what were you reading like what was your relationship with the written word it's a lot here and then I know you know I know Spanglish Spanish English you spoke all the above like did you learn was was English your first language was it concurrent with Spanish like how did how did that work oh yeah hold on let me I'll start with the reading um you know I think as as much as I was being like rebellious and doing all these things um reading was an escape for me pre those ages so even like middle school before all the hormones hit (laughs) um I was super into reading and my mom thankfully was very supportive of that habit and so she would buy me books. She would, my sister would take me to the library. Um, and I, you know, I read a lot of like what was popular at that time in like 80s um, series. So like I started with like the Babysitter's Club yeah. and then I read like Sweet Valley High. And then I went into this big horror phase where I was reading like uh, R.L. Stein, And um, and then I started reading Anne Rice. That okay. that gets me to like the rebellious stage, yeah, and yeah, yeah. then I just like religiously read all her books, even the ones not about the vampires, and um, I just consumed books at a high rate. And so, uh, like my sister, who is ten years older than me, was giving me adult books to read when I was like a freshman in high school already, mm. just because I was going through books so quickly. Yeah. Um, I, and I think it was just a nice place to be, right? When you don't like anyone, the best place to be is in your mind. And I had like mental <laughs> movies just going all the time with the books. So Man, that's deep. that I was like great. That. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, were there some writers or writing that like made you just like see the world differently, like and also see yourself? I know you got into writing not late, but a little bit later, maybe than some. Like, was there a book or books or series or writers where you're just like, man, I can do this or like amazed or amazed by how well somebody does it? I, I think, you know, that's hard because I, I do this thing when I read that I get really like crazy about one book and I'm like, this is amazing. And I won't stop mm. talking about it. <laughs> and then I'll get to the next book that does that to me. And I'll be like, this is amazing. And so, um, I you know, I think on my young little minds, when I, cause I, you know, I had journals all growing up. Hmm. I had tons of journals. I still have them like in a little box. The black like, and white cover? Those... The black and white, like pebbled cover? Those, the composition. I have yeah. one of those. Oh, yeah. And then I have like, I, I just like to collect journals also. So I have all these random ones. But hmm. um, so I think when I first started trying to write and I was a baby writer who was afraid to show anything to anyone, yeah. right? And we're like, no. I think was when I was reading Anne Rice, honestly, because I was just kind of um, amazed on how she would describe things. And I don't know if I go back now, if I'm going to feel the same way. But at that age, I was like, wow, this is amazing. Mm. And I think just some of her ideas, how she played, like one of my favorite books actually is uh, one of the later ones, Memoc the Devil, where she's playing with like religion. Mm. And that was really like, what how is this yeah. possible because i was raised so catholic right that part of me was like this is sacrilegious and then the other part was like this is amazing mm. <laughs> um so it was like a little secret um that i kept because like my mom was suspicious of that book i don't know if she read the cover and she was like trying to wait to get it for me and then i i bought it myself yeah and <laughs> then she was like oh okay well too late <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked I, that was it was amazing to me like I mean the more and more I've talked to people especially from Texas I get it I get it from California too where like I'm in Sacramento and people are like do you know LA I do because I live there but LA is six seven hours away right my point is like you were talking about when you're living in Dallas some of the people in Dallas were like El Paso where's that <laughs> right so yeah so 12 hours away 12 man, hours I mean Texas is huge right I guess my, my point is just like, you know, I mean, obviously like the borderlands and then even there's like what Rio Grande Valley, which I guess would not be El Paso. Right. I mean, there's so many different areas of Texas and then the borderlands of any place, you know, there's always a different culture cultures. So I just wonder, like, did you feel like represented in all the different, you know, subcultures, cultures that make you up? Like, did you feel represented in what you read? You know, I don't that never occurred to me until later. Uh, when I was in college, the first book I actually read where I saw Spanglish was Dagoberto Guild's Gritos. Okay. And at, and at first, I have to admit, I did not like it. Because mm. I was like, what is this? Yeah. I didn't understand it. And I think I was, yeah, I was in college at the time. I don't know how old I was. But I didn't understand what he was doing. And I kind of felt, I was like, the Spanish is kind of forced. Why is he doing this? And then... um it wasn't until later that I started thinking like, oh, wait a minute. I don't, I, I don't see any people like me in the books that I've read. Um, and I think I'm going to like, there's a TED talk that I love, uh, a, da a danger of a single story. Oh yeah. oh yeah. And, you know, she talks about how she would write about snow and apples and yeah. think and ginger beer. And I, and I think that's exactly Coming where from, what, I Nigeria, was. Nigeria, I want to say, right? Yes, yeah. Like it doesn't snow in Nigeria. Like what? What? Yeah. Because she was reading books by like British authors, mm -hmm. and I kind of had that same thing in that I was 
I didn't think that I could write about my life or about where I came from or the border or anything like that because I'd never seen it in a book. And even later, as I started reading more and I started reading books by more people of color, I realized I didn't also necessarily resonate with like uh, immigrant stories or first generation Mm. stories. Mm. So I also felt a disconnect to some of those narratives. And I find my found myself gravitating more towards like um, Cuban literature or like Mm. Dominican literature, because there was that first gen narrative that we see a lot in in Chicano literature. Mm. Um, So it was weird. Like, I'm like, this is yeah, I get it. But I don't I've never had this experience. And so um, but then I, I don't know. I don't know if I necessarily needed permission, but it was interesting seeing what people were doing with language. And I was fascinated by that. And then, you know, there's a famous Juno Diaz quote where people, where he talks about people spend forever uh, learning like Elfish or something for Lord of the Lord of the oh, Rings, yes, but they yes, can't, yes. they can't learn Spanish or right. they get upset about one line. <laughs> and I think maybe that little inner like 13 year old rebellion person was like, yeah, let's put Spanish because we want to. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I don't know. I gave you a really long answer. I'm sorry. No, right? no, I appreciate that. No, a lot of, touched on a lot of things. That's really interesting. So I'll be, I'll be 43 in about a week and a half. So I think we're kind of around the same age. So the Nirvana was really sticking out to me because, you know, so I don't know in my, in my, in the, you know, growing up around, you had to be a rapper or a rocker. You couldn't be both. If you were, yeah, you, were you, you were a poser. Remember That's to a, it. Yeah. Right. To be a poser was just right. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. So yes. Yeah. I, it was a big always, insult. Right. I've always been into both big time. I'm all listening to Sinatra, to, to Dr. Dre, to Bone Thugs and Harmony, to, you know, Tool or whatever. But I love Nirvana. So tell me about some Nirvana. Was it was it more like the aesthetic, you know, that you were into or were you really into their music? I was really into their music. Uh, the aesthetic didn't hurt by any means. <laughs> but um, yeah, I was super just, I remember, you know, first hearing that I think ever, like anyone who grew up in that time period, they have like, I remember when I first heard Nirvana that mm. you're just kind of like, and then now in retrospect, we look like as soon as they came out, it was like the death of like hair metal, right? It's mm. just like, <laughs> and so um, I I don't know. I, I, I grew up listening to a ton of music. And then when I finally got to pick my own music, I just went to Nirvana and I listened to their album. The only one I didn't love too, too much was Bleach because it was okay. just really, yeah. it was rough. It was rough, um, right, right. But even like Incesticide where people weren't that excited about that one, I'd listen to that one i i just really um loved their albums and then of course the last unplugged was Oof. yeah i mean i have it on vinyl and it's still amazing to this day so i think the music just really spoke to this generation of angsty kids who were left home alone a lot mm-hmm. yeah yeah no i i'll go back every i don't know six seven months not like it's a schedule thing but like i'll go back and watch the video for uh where did you sleep last night when he does that you know everyone kind of talks mm-hmm. about like that that was like a unfortunately like a preview of like you know of his depression of his you know you know all that but just like you know you know what i'm talking about when he takes that deep breath where did you sleep yes. last night? And towards the end so yeah, i was really interested in that and then we can talk maybe later about how the music is maybe how music affects your writing even 
but so like as you got older into into college and into into grad school which you you know there was a separation between um college right and in grad school but who really just thrilled you thrills present tense like who are you even as a professor like who are you teaching but oh. also loving <laughs> You know what I do? I, I rotate a lot uh, on who I'm teaching um, because I find that, and I'll go back to some. So uh, yeah. let's see. Um, okay. So in like my Chicano literature class, I was teaching Jose Olivares, okay. um, Citizen Illegal, because I really loved that. And then I was teaching um, Luis Alberto Urea's Nobody's Son which was beautiful. Um, And then the past last semester, I switched it out and I was doing Maria Hinojosa's. Mm. um, Oh, heard the title just slipped my mind. Uh, Oh, once I was you, what I had right there. And then uh, what's the name of her show? NPR Latino, uh, Latino USA. Yes. Latino USA. Okay. And then I was teaching an anthology of poetry that was like Jose Olivares was also involved with the Latinx anthology. Uh That was pretty cool. Um, right now, and that's in my Chicano Lit class. So in my like literature courses, I try to offer a little bit of everything. So, um, like I have Black Flamingo hmm. by, uh, and you know, I'm so bad with names. I was looking up names actually that's right a- before I talk. <laughs> Black Flamingo. It's a beautiful, um, LGBTQ plus story of a boy who's been growing up in, uh, England, but he's biracial, like he's half Black, half Greek or half Jamaican, half Greek. Hmm. Um, and it's written in verse. So it's oh, wow. it's really lovely. Um, Juliet takes a breath. I'm teaching that one too. Okay. And when I say teach, I put students in groups and they read a novel. And that way they, they each read. There's about 10 uh, novels in the class and they're all grouped. So I'm teaching different groups at the same time. I'm sorry to interrupt you. So it's Dean, Dean Ada, Dean Ada? Yes, yes, yeah. Okay. All right. Man, so, so you're, I mean, you're open to, I love it. You're open to change. I mean, you're not teaching like the canon, like, you know, no matter what, every year, again and again. No, no, yeah. no. I like mixing it up. And I like yeah. also just introducing my students. Like those two books that I mentioned, I have a longer list. I could just mm-hmm. go on. Um, but I like to put in YA because I feel like students have been taught this antiquated canon that mm-hmm. they cannot relate to. And so they get this impression yeah. and that's how they start saying, like, I don't read. I don't like to read. And I'm like, do you realize that's like saying I don't like to eat? Like, Thank you. you read everything. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so... I have more modern works on there and I try to pick stuff that I think they would relate to. And I give them a list of choices and I let them pick which one they want from that list. That way, at least they're going to read something that I hope they will enjoy. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I like to rotate that list a lot. I read a ton. And so I'm always like, Oh, I think this one and this one. And mm-hmm. it's a lot yeah. of fun for me. Yeah, I bet. So, you know, your book is a memoir. Are you, are there particular memoirists who you, you really um, were inspired by who really you really enjoy their work yes um in fact I I sort of had like a giant fangirl moment because on the cover of my book um there's a Sonia Livingston she wrote Ghost Bread mm-hmm. and she blurred my book and I read her yeah. book when I was writing mine yeah so I you know it sort of came full circle for me yeah. and um I really enjoy her writing and then um someone else I was reading at that time was Nick Flynn the another bullshit night in Suck City That's a great and, title. Great title. <laughs> yes he plays with form in his memoir a lot and I think that sort of inspired me to play with some of like the recipe 
um, that I have in it, or even the way I kind of did listing. He did this beautiful, like, faux interview with his father in the memoir. Like, if this is the conversation I would have had with him, but he's interviewing him. And so I found like that so interesting, because I think, even though it's a memoir, I myself imagined what it would be like to have a conversation with like my grandma or with my dad or and even though it's not real, it's still imagined conversations I've had in my mind. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is so cool. Mm. I can play with this idea. Um, and this is not a memoir, but I, or no, it is. Uh, Joey Castro. Uh, oh, yeah. I, yeah. And so um, that one was a lot of fun just because of the language and culture that was weaved into it. So yeah. um, that also, I was like, okay, this is, like it's culturally adjacent, okay. but I, but I was like, oh wait, she did this. I can do this. Mm. Um, yeah, I think those are the top top ones. Yeah. Um, that I can think of. Like these are the ones that really influenced me. Mm-hmm. I just had a guest of three or four episodes ago who who definitely shouted out Joy Castro. So that's cool, cool to hear. So the the full title is Andale Prieta, a love letter to my family. Um, I wonder. I guess in the end of the book, you kind of learn about the seeds for the book, but like, yeah, I'd love to know about the seeds for the book. Like what made you say, like, I need, I need to write this or I want to write this. You know, I think the book and I'm, this sounds like a cliche answer, but I think the book wanted to be written and it just kind of dragged me along <laughs> the, the book way. Had agency. Yes. It it did. Cause it even decided like when it was going to get published, cause it was supposed to be published like two years ago and uh-huh. then COVID hit it had another cover and then it ended up getting this cover, which mm. um, is, they're both beautiful, but this one just hits home a little bit more. Um, it didn't even go with the original publisher. <laughs> so ah. th- it has a mind of its own. It, it just decided like, this is what I want. And um, I'm very superstitious. So I feel like that my Epa had like a hand in it. Like, no, not yet, not yet, not yet. Mm. Um, and yeah, it just, did what it wanted and it started with just short stories when I was uh just mourning her death and trying to hang on to memories I had of her and it just like grew and grew and grew from there well so that was so cool I ended up going on a little google search of uh I want to say Dr. Abarca right so you like you like food food and writing basically food and culture writing you know that kind of thing is one of the classes that you took you talked about like so I want to know about this story that you wrote that like the class got impressed by. It was it was about it wasn't about food. It's not like about about your Ita, about like like her makeup routine kind of like Yes, yeah. Um it, you know it was it was funny because I'd been turning in stuff that I thought was writerly and my workshops had just been really bad up until that point. <laughs> um and I was definitely feeling like, whoa, did I make a right decision by coming home and doing this? Because yeah. this is rough. And for whatever reason, I wasn't prepared. Like, I don't, I didn't do homework. I didn't do, I don't know what, but I took the piece actually, I think it closes the part one where I'm watching her take her makeup off. Yeah, it's part one mm-hmm. where it's like she's polishing her face. And I remember uh, my professor and now a good friend, Lex Williford was like going on and on about the calzones like and the calzones are so beautiful (laughs) yeah yeah where it's like the men's underwear but it was funny because 
you know, Lex, Lex is white and he knows some Spanish, but when he was going on, like the calzones are beautiful. I was like, does he know what calzones are? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. he just found like, it was a very um, human moment where I'm not trying, I wasn't trying to write, like I thought a writer should write. It was, you know, this is how it happened. And yeah. um, that's when I was kind of like blown, blown away. Cause I was like, oh wait, I can sound like myself. I can write the way I want to write. And mm. it's okay. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things I was so impressed about with the book is your 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 masterful touch with like the point of view, like of a child. You know, like watching her cook, watching her do, you know, watching her at the bar, watching, you know, and then you know, it's, you know, as it traces your your life. But like, I know that, that I know from experience, it's really hard to get that point of view of the child without like not dumbing it down, but you know what I mean, with that, like making it like authentic. So that was really impressive. Um, chapter one ends. Well, I'm a huge, huge fan of like the forgetting the Latin term. There's a Latin term for like starting in the middle. And so your chapter one starts with you working, you know, describing your time working at, at like Nordstrom's and these in these clothing places. And chapter one ends with I didn't tell them I never got a chance to fit Ita. And that was so powerful because it was talking about how you helped those who had 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 breast cancer and lost a breast, you know, prosthetics and stuff like that. And I just was so um, like blown away by that. Um, that last line, it was an end, it was an ending of a chapter, but it was a beginning. It was a middle it was all that. I didn't tell them that I never got a chance to fit eat that. Just, it's almost like foreshadowing too, you know, for the rest of the book. Um, I love to talk about the meaning of Prieta. The meanings. Sure. Meanings, yes. There's there's multiple. Right? Yeah. So it sounded like it, it especially came out like when you were you were getting taught to like to box and defend yourself, right? At school and that kind of thing. Your ethos she like she could handle herself with a fist. Um, but so like I wonder about Prieta. You know, it's hard because Prieta for me it means one thing, and then in the outside world it can mean something else. And so the, the core of the book, and I try to address that a little bit, um, but since most of my experiences were not negative with the term Prieta, um, that's why it's even, like the title is, I got really excited by it. I felt like my grandma and I were both mm -hmm. represented in the title, yeah, yeah, yeah. right? So she's the one that's telling me Andale Prieta in certain points in the book. And so, you know, Prieta at its core just means like dark one or darker one. Like I'm Prietita, I'm extra Prietita right now because I spent the holidays at a beach. Nice. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but I didn't grow up um, feeling odd about my skin. That didn't come until later. And actually from like classmates where I was like, oh, wait, I'm darker. Yeah. Okay. And that was an odd thing for me to feel completely normal at home. And then for my skin color to be pointed out like at school. Mm -hmm by other kids that were also like Mexican, Mexican-American. And I'm like, wait a minute, why are you doing that? Right. Oh. <laughs> the kid, I, I was very confused by it. Yeah. And then as I got older and then living in Dallas, I definitely felt my skin color a lot. Um, and so I always went back to, I'm Prieta, like my grandma's version of Prieta hmm. that I was okay. Like she never told me to stay out of the sun, you know, yeah, yeah, things yeah. that you'll hear from other people in the Latina community, and that's where the negative term comes in, right? Because some people use it as like, oh, you're so prieta, okay. bien prieta. I notice the negative comes when you add like the bien, like you're uh, very dark. Okay. Um, and 
So it's complicated, but for me, it's like a word that I cherish yeah. um, so much. And that I'm I'm so glad that my Etha sort of instilled that in me. And there was never anything negative about my skin color with my family. Hmm. Describe like, you know, spending a lot of time with her, you know, when your mom was, your mom was working really hard, you know, working two jobs oftentimes. So you spent a good amount of time with your, with your grandma, with your Etha. And she's just, somebody says that you are her sombra, which is so cool, right? You're her shadow and you really, you really were, right? I mean, you were in the bars, you you know, wherever she would go, church. Um, so that, you know, we get, to, you were talking about how important the, the word Prieta is to you because that was her term of affection and endearment for you. you. You write about how you were, you know, you'd be crying at school. You were worried about your mom. What what was it that your mom was doing that was, you know, maybe dangerous? At the, well, at the time I, I knew what my mom was doing. I knew that my mom worked at the bridge, right? And now it's called CBP, but at that point it was still just customs because customs and border patrol were separate. Uh-huh. entities they were cousins um so I knew my mom worked at the bridge as a kid but I didn't really know what that meant yeah until um I saw like there was a, a seizure um of some I don't know if it was drugs I don't know what kind of drugs but then I saw like these men wearing the same uniform that my mom wore every day and then it kind of like clicked like oh wait a minute and it was weird to me, like these big men were doing the same job my little mom was mm. doing because my mom was very petite, like five, four, mm-hmm. um, you know, putting on, you know, her, her belt and her, all this, all this stuff. It was like armor essentially. So it just started to sink into me. Like she could really get hurt. Um, but it's weird. And I, and I guess maybe it was a Catholic in me or I was already superstitious. Mm. Like I felt if I said it out loud, then it would happen. Yes. And so I just kind of hung on to it. Uh-huh. Man, that, that is a Catholic thing. I used I used to say, I used to do the other way around where I felt like if I said something, like if I jumped on a crack or something like that four times, then something I wanted to happen would. But if I did it three times, it wouldn't. Oh, man. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> You know, part of the rituals with your with your grandma was um, was church. You know, you describe how like your uncle, your uncle's gill, is that right? Your uncle's gill. No, that was uh, one of her husbands. Oh, pardon me, pardon me. Right, and so you know, this idea of like her kind of um, I don't know, stilted or kind of uncomfortable relationship with your mom at times, gill, and then you know there were multiple multiple husbands for for grandma, right? Multiple men in the life. This idea of like the two families for in your case, right? For where um your father, you had you, you describe your memories of him as folded, quote unquote. And your mom, it really says a lot about your mom. Your mom, when seeing that he had a previous family, right? She basically said, The only person I can rely on is me. So I wonder kind of I guess long way of getting at like how your mom and your grandma kind of butted heads at times, like like all mothers and daughters do, all sons and you know. But what was it about their personalities and maybe their histories that kind of that made them clash at times? You know, I think one big thing for sure um, is they were both they both were grudge holders. Mm. And so if they were arguing about, you know, dinner, suddenly it would turn into this thing that happened like a month ago. And so there was just a lot of baggage that they both carried. And then I think 
you know, my mom was so afraid to be vulnerable to ask for help mm. that then when, if she did finally decide to ask for help and for some reason at that point, whoever it was could not do it, then she just saw it as like reaffirming, see, mm-hmm. I can't rely on anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, she set herself up to kind of, you know, it was unrealistic for like this one time I asked you to do something mm-hmm. or ask for your help, but you can't do it. Right. Um, I mean, my grandma helped her a lot. She watched me and my sister and didn't really charge my mom anything. Mm-hmm. And my grandma was already retired. And But, you know, she, you know, she's a bartender and very blue collar worker up until that point. Mm-hmm. And so she didn't have a lot of money. And so yeah. she would take us places. And so my mom would give her, I think like 50 bucks a week. And then she would complain about that, but that's how she would buy me food. Right, right. And but she would always buy me like little toys or it wasn't like your grandma was like, you know, stealing off the top or something like that. Right. And like, yeah, saving like, $45 every year. Exactly. She's buying groceries and things like that were going into my stomach. Right, <laughs> so right, right. It was just kind of, it was odd witnessing that. And then also as a child, like not having the word to like know what you're witnessing and convey like, Hey, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, so that was that was odd, like to to know it because I have distinct memories of me thinking like this is really weird, uh, but I didn't know what was weird about it until mm-hmm. later. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, speaking of words, obviously you you traffic in words. You're you're wordsmith. You know, there's like the double meaning of like scars, the scars for your grandma, like you know, big injuries in her life, you know, physical but also emotional, mental. There's a great passage here. It's quote. Saying life was hard for my grandma in English doesn't suffice. The words lack feeling. In this case, Espanol tiene más sentimiento. Le tocó muy dura la vida a mi Ita. She believed the hardships of her life were her penance. I think Ita prayed for seven deep scars no one ever saw. She prayed for mistakes and self-doubt, the weight heavy. Mostly she prayed that she had made the right choices all those years ago. If I could snap, I would. In, in 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 agreement or just uh in approval wow it's a tough life for her to say the least right you so you have uh i guess a chapter that's just dedicated to those scars and it's such an interesting and creative way to do storytelling what where did the where did that idea come from to like break down the scars and then obviously that's you know a microcosm for your grandma it's representative of your grandma's life yeah um you know the, it all started with that memory of her um bathing because you know when you I, I grew up in a household of women and if you have to go to the bathroom you go to the bathroom even mm-hmm. if someone's bathing because we, we literally was one of those old bathtubs there was no shower uh, so you yeah. could only bathe and if I had to pee I had to go <laughs> and so um we often saw each other naked um of course I was a kid so I was more like no and then as an adult she just didn't care and so I just remember um watching her get out of the bathtub one time and just you know, you see something every day that you don't really realize it. But that day, for some reason, I saw like, whoa, wait a minute, because yeah. the scar on her back was huge. Obviously, her mastectomy scar was was pretty, pretty jagged because it was early on in, in mastectomy. Oh, yeah. um, and so it was just like, wow, I, I really just saw her body as this, like, carrying a story. Mm. Um, and Stories, you know, we, right? Yeah, stories, yeah. Oh. Like multiple stories. And so when I started writing it, I didn't know how to organize it. And then I just thought, why don't I just start with like if I'm looking at her? Mm-hmm. 
like moving down sort of her body. And um, it just ended up working really well. And sort of these little um, snippets of of pieces and stories of her life. And, and then, of course, I had to talk to my mom for some of those to fill in. Because um, I was like, how did this one happen? And how did this one happen? Yeah. And yeah, they just turned into little like capsules. I mean, there, there, could, there needs to be a movie made about grandma. You know, I mean, what a life. That would be great from your from your mouth. Someone's gonna hear you. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Who who plays who plays your grandma in the movie? Well, I don't know. You know, some, my my best spot. friend asked me that, and I was like, "Oh no, it has to be someone like." But I I can't think of anyone. Um, Rita one Morena, of a kind, right? Uh, one character, yeah, one of a kind. But I I was going to read Rita Moreno, but now she's a little too old. Um, okay. It's a little too elder. I shouldn't say old because she's beautiful. <laughs> I saw her recently at a film festival and I was in awe. Huh. Um, so, but yeah, she's just a little out, like older right. than my grandma would have been at that time. Right, right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, it's a memoir, so you know, by nature, it's 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 personal. It's um, you know, it's it's confessional, that kind of thing. And you know, there's part where we were talking about like the complicated relationship between your mom and your grandma, and you write about how you wish you'd pointed out why your mom wouldn't come up to the, to the apartment sometimes because she was too tired. It'd been a long day. And then why Etha wanted her to, she missed her daughter, you know, et cetera. And so obviously, I mean, we all understand like, you know, I mean, there's no reason for you to feel guilt. We all understand guilt or wish we could have, and just really appreciate you putting yourself out there like that. But you, you write beautifully about, we talked about Prieta. This is the passage about why it's so special to you or one of, Prieta is a term of endearment. When I tell people who don't speak Spanish what Prieta means, dark or the dark one, their eyes pop open and a small gasp escapes. I see the offense they feel for me sprinkled on their faces like the freckles I will never have. How do I tell them that when I heard Ita say Prieta, I felt the caress of her strong hands on the top of my head as she braided my hair? How do I tell them that I never knew what Prieta really meant, etc., etc., until some light-skinned Mexican kid laughed to me? Beautiful writing there. I felt the crest of her strong hands on the top of my head, just with that word. Uh, beautiful. I remember as a as learning Spanish, I was shocked, shocked when my, my friend's mom called him gordito. I was like, Oh, I just learned gordo. I just learned what that means, you know, but it's ito and it's between, you know, all that stuff. So, you know, I was new to yeah. the language. There's affection there, right? There you go. And then you end part one because part two is, is called finding Yasmin. And it's, you know, not like it totally changes subject matter, but it's more, a little bit more focused on you. Um, but this, again, creatively, like, incredible, you have this imagined huge family because Ethan had previous miscarriages. And you have this, I mean, it's so well done. It's so, it's, it's an imagined, you know, this huge family and so-and-so, he would have been born. He would have been like this and his, you know, he would have brought this girlfriend over um, just like, Futurism is not the word like speculative. I don't know what you would call that. Just that little sex. Was that written separately? Was that written like just for one assignment and then it became part of the book or was it all together? You know, so originally when I was writing the book, I was writing it as a collection of short stories. Ah. So it wasn't like the chapters that you see here. Um, so I was thinking of, of it more as a collection. And um, when I was collection writing that, e- sorry, sorry, collection of essays or short, like fiction or nonfiction? Well, I was thinking like fiction or like, yeah, creative nonfiction. Okay. But then I sort of, you know, because my background was a fiction writer. Yeah. And so 
I wanted to do something um, to discuss, you know, that very heavy load that my grandma carried. Oh. And I was trying to think of how I could write about it without, well, one, showing judgment or how I felt about it. And I was very afraid that others were going to judge her. I think that was probably the only um, moment where I was writing this that I thought, like, I was very protective of her. I didn't want anyone to think badly of her. And I remembered when I was a kid, I would watch her, you know, as she was praying, she would just kind of gaze off. And she was not necessarily there with me at that moment. And that that gaze stayed with me. And I thought, well, what if she was just imagining like this whole other life that she could have had if she had been able to keep, you know, those children. And that's how I got the idea to have this whole made up yeah. um, family. Yeah. And I had a lot of fun writing it. Um and then also just, I, it's almost like I got to live in her imagination for a little while. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it, it was really beautiful and then, you know, bittersweet when I get to the end of it. Um, but yeah, I think I, that was my my idea to approach it sort of from a neutral stance. And I'm lucky that I got that idea. Mm. Yeah, sure. You talk about meta, like you said, you got to imagine as her, like we got to imagine through you through her yeah i mean there's just there's levels there man so yeah part two is is finding yasmin and um you know you write about at the beginning about you know just wanting to be noticed you know everyone in the world can understand that kind of distancing yourself a little bit more from grandma there's the there's the great or or well-known i think the is it cherokee it's the idea of feeding the wrong wolf mm-hmm Right, whichever one, the good, good or evil. I think I'm simpl- oversimplifying, but like you know, whichever one eats better is the one that's fed better. I guess, I guess I'm just kind of wondering, how did you feel like you were feeding the wrong wolf, or were you? What did that mean to you? You know, I think, and, and I think this is where um, adult me looks back on like younger Yasmin, and maybe is like, why did you do that? Like, but I, I have to remember that younger Yasmin was not her brain was not completely developed right you know she she didn't know a bunch of stuff and so her idea of fun of like or you know crushing on a guy and going and smoking pot up on the side of a mountain was a good (laughs) idea (laughs) um and now adult yasmin is like what are you doing you went up there with three guys by yourself like that could have been really bad yeah um and I'm so blessed that I was just around some cool guys that wanted to get high, you know? Um, <laughs> right. But so I think that's what I mean. I put myself in kind of some dangerous situations sometimes. I distanced myself from my family, um, not just like physical distance, but I, I didn't want anything to do with like kind of what they thought was acceptable mm. um, or, and it was a huge rejection to me too. Like I started to reject a lot of my culture Cause I didn't want to be, um, I don't know. I didn't want to be the, the Mexican girl with long hair. Mm. And so I, I slowly started cutting my hair mm-hmm. and, you know, listening to rock and, um, just distancing myself overall from, from whatever I thought was maybe, and I think this comes a lot from like distancing from my father's side of the family. Cause I didn't want anything to do with him. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I think I was just feeding the wrong wolf and not really looking at things critically and just Mm. reacting versus, um, I don't know, thinking about things just a little bit longer. 
I mean, what you're describing, I mean, as, as a high school teacher, like I've never, ever seen that with any of my students <laughs> ever. Where they're maybe where they're maybe doing things that you kind of ask why I've never I'm I'm being sarcastic of course I'm all uh, <laughs> they all we all did it I know yeah, we all did we all did oh heck yeah yeah I I decided that it was somehow safe that I would put my big old backpack as a high school freshman I just put it under the under the in the locker room under the seats under the bench and somehow nobody would steal it I just thought that made sense those kind of things right. Yes, um, those kinds of things. <laughs> but so, yeah, so one of the guys you met, in you know, Paisan, Angelo, right? Angelo, describe here. He was somebody, you talk about well, like your relationship with your dad and that you'd made, you know, this isn't just a quick, you know, over a couple months, but over a couple of years, you made these these trips to see your dad. That trip with him was very awkward. It sounds like dad thought you were there to, to share news of your impending wedding. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And <That>. then, <laughs> right. And then, you know, these visits and they were, they were awkward, you know, and um, I guess it was when you're about age 19 and that really seemed like you were just kind of like, this is it. Like, I'm sure again, bittersweet was the word that it was kind of like, this just isn't working. I'm trying too hard. I'm not trying, you know, and that made you, in some ways made you move to Dallas, right. To live with your older sister. Am I getting the connection right there? Yes. You know, I think it was, it was that I think that was like the icing on the cake. Yeah. Um, because I, I had just gone through so many things that were new to me. Um, you know, when you're used to being like the really smart kid in school and then you go to college and suddenly mm. you're one and like hundreds in a classroom and they don't even know your name. And um that's like very shocking, right? I was used to being praised all the time, like, oh, you're you know, this is so great. Um, and then I didn't, there was nobody holding me accountable. I was like, oh, mm. they don't take attendance. This is awesome. Right. Uh so you know, failing out of college, um, get working at the airport. Um, I did not love that job. Mm. Uh it was just a lot of stuff that I was like, this isn't working for me. And I I just felt really aimless and lost. And I hadn't had that feeling before because I was always like very goal-oriented. Like I'm doing XYZ for this. Right. And that was the first time that I didn't have a plan yeah. at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was really it was really great of your mom, like it sounds like a little bit later on, but you were saying like, oh, like you were gonna go to grad school, then you're like, no, I'm not. And then your mom said something basically about, hey, in your own time, right? Yeah. In your own time. And so, you know, yeah. So there was, you began to work a lot of like, I don't know, retail too generic of a term? No. I mean, it, at its core, it's, it's retail. It's just yeah. fancy high-end retail. Right. And so, you know, you were working the floor, you had, some, but you, you know, you did decide to write. There was a lot of things that went on, like we talked about earlier with, um, you know, you, you Later on, you really lost any love for that type of work, but you you always appreciated like being able to help those with the scars, those who had, had mastectomies, because that was you know keeping you closer to to grandma to Ita. Unfortunately, when you were in Dallas, um, you, she passed away, and you described you know you returned to El Paso and just obviously I mean just huge grief for everybody involved. Um, but you you know you read about it a lot, but you I don't know what it was exactly, but you put a real unique spin on it, but just like. You couldn't cry. You didn't cry. Was that you putting that on yourself? Was that some sort of external pressure? Like, you know, I definitely there was there was that. Um, it's like I I couldn't. Like I felt like everything was muted at that point. Like everything was just at a distance and far away. 
Um, and that was the first time that I saw my mom, not as a mom, but as a woman right. who just lost her mother. Right. So that's always like a big slap in the face when you see your parents not as a parent any longer. Um, and so my sister and I both had to, you know, be the ones to take care of things mm-hmm. um, because my mom was completely incapable of it. Yeah. And that, I think that's where I just kind of like, I shut everything. I shut a part of my brain off so that I could do the, what I needed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's something so, so profound and so like sad and beautiful and all the above about like, just, you know, just the women, right. You were around the apartment and you were, you know, who's going to keep this and who's going to keep that. And also some like, oh man, remember this and, and all of that. But, you know, with obviously with a lot of it's like she had a couple of decent ones, but some some real jerks, some really some real pendejos for for Ita, right? And, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, dad was not in the picture. It's just like you know, you, your sister, and her. There's something about that that was so so stirring. Then the Pino Grigio hit, huh? And uh, let it all yeah. out. Was that was there like a not happiness is not the word because it was such a sad time, but like was there a, a relief or a catharsis in finally being able to let it out, even if it was maybe with through alcohol? Yeah, yeah, of course. It it felt. Um, you know, for, for lack of a better term, I felt like I had just like my mouth was taped shut. Like I, mm. I just couldn't, um, cause I wasn't even talking very much at that point. Mm. Um, like I, I wrote the scene where we're at the church and the priest is trying to be very priestly. And I was just like, get the fuck away from me. Right, <laughs> you right, know, right, like right. I, I didn't say that, but my gaze definitely uh. said it. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, I think at that moment it was nice just to like scream and yell mm-hmm. and and sing and try to remember songs from when I was a kid. Um, the next day hurt a lot, <laughs> <laughs> but but for that brief amount of time, I was able to just finally let some of the grief um, out because uh, it's a lot to carry. Yeah, yeah. Well, how would you describe the hambre de Dios? Like, do you mean in a literal sense or the story itself? The story itself. The story itself. Um, so it came from that phrase, right? Hambre de Dios, tienes hambre de Dios, uh, that I always found was interesting that my Ipa would say when like, we had the munchies. We're like, oh, I want this. Um, the story kind of came out of anger, actually, because I, I you know, my Ipa believed in, in God and church and it was very Catholic. And um, I was just so disappointed. Like, I'm like, she prayed to you all the time. And th- this is it? Like, this this is how this happens? And there was this sort of sense of satisfaction that, and, and maybe this goes back a little bit, right, to where I talked about Anne Rice and how she's playing with God and her stories. Mm-hmm. That I was like, I'm going to play with it. And I'm going to just eat him. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. Um, that and eat him and then still not feel satisfied. And um I feel like there's a lot of loneliness in people seeking religion and it just makes you lonelier because you're waiting for an answer that's never gonna come. Damn. Damn. And that <laughs> and that's how I that's yeah. how I felt yeah. at that point. Yeah, that that those I guess a couple of pages that's pretty trippy stuff, right? Yeah, I had fun <laughs> with it. It was a lot of fun writing I, that. I bet. <laughs> I bet.
So, you know, we talked about like, you know, you had like the Eureka moment about, hey, this is not it, like working in retail, because you'd gone back to Dallas after those, you know, the, you know, there's something about, I'm sure about going to El Paso, seeing everything again, feeling all those feelings, and then going back to Dallas, where, you know, you wrote about like, you felt, you know, it's like almost like a different country. You said it's nine, 12 hours away. Some people didn't know El Paso was in Texas, um, very much more white, um, right, than, than El Paso, not on the border, um, just different. Um, and Angie, your sister said, come home. You wanted to do creative writing, UTEP got that program. Right. Um, I wonder just about that sense of rejuvenation that came when you came back to El Paso. You know, when I first got back, uh, I did everything so quickly, um, that I was like, I'm quitting and coming home. And two weeks later I was home. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was interesting, you know, I thought I was coming home, but I wasn't, I didn't actually come home because my home didn't exist anymore. Uh Um, And so I was living with my mom and her husband who she got married that, you know, that decade that I was gone. And he was a very kind man who let me live with them for a little while, Mm -hmm. but it just felt weird because I'd been on my own for so long and now I'm living at home. But the first thing I did, I like literally slept for a week. Mm. Um, Come on, literally. Literally, I li- literally, <laughs> I did. I like would wake up to eat and then I would just go back to bed and I would That's fall asleep awesome. again. That's awesome. Um, I was like a cat. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I was just so tired. I, um, that I just slept. And then my mom was, you know, it was interesting because she told me, I don't want you to work. I don't know what that place did to you, but you cannot work, mm. uh, for a month. And I was like, what do you mean? Um, but I think that's what I needed. Yeah. And then, um, and then of course I started getting a little stir crazy. I want to say like two weeks in, I started reorganizing sure. their kitchen cabinet and things like <laughs> that. <laughs> um, but it it was nice, nice and scary at the same time because, like I said, the home that I remember didn't exist any longer. So I had to kind of make like this new home, and yeah. it was weird and scary. I was really scared uh, for. <laughs> For a big chunk of time, like, is this going to work? Yeah. And then little things would happen, like, when I, you know, and even in the program, because up until then, so I started to show people, like, some short stories that mm. I'd written. And my friends were like, yeah, they're amazing. And then I got into the program, and people were like, suck. <laughs> so <laughs> I was just like, oh, no, what did I do? Yeah. Um, but I think then I just embraced uh, being home. And I think that that's apparent in the book and and little little things like the program and the story and music and and finding um, joy in cooking and food again because I'd even lost that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How would you describe the look on the guy's face? You went to like the tire shop or whatever, and you you said it was a little different than Dallas where you had to spell your name, but in El Paso he kind of looked at you like you're spelling oh gas me. What kind of look did he, he give? You? I mean. I feel like the whole. I felt like at that moment the whole place just went silent and they were all <laughs> looking at me like what is she doing and mm-hmm. I felt so stupid because the other thing is I was using like my white voice at that point I had like a retail Dallas white voice so I was <laughs> like Yasmin Y-A-S-M-I-N <laughs> and then I was like oh my god no I can't do that here <laughs> um I can use my normal voice which I mean I don't it, it's weird that uh I have that but uh because my <laughs> my normal voice doesn't have an accent but um <laughs> When you're surrounded by, you know, Prada and Versace and something happens to you. <laughs> That's funny. So, yeah. So, I mean, you got to be in that that class with 
involving food and writing and Dr. Abarca. And she just had this much passion for it. I mean, I know what you're talking about. I know where someone like, you're just like, I want to get that passion, whatever it is. Right. And we talked about the piece um, that you wrote about Ita taking off her makeup and how that wowed the class that was featured in the book, in your, in your book. What was it about that class that like gave you, that was like a catalyst for you to write in general, write this book? I think really, I am so grateful to Lex. Um, Lex Williford, he he actually ended up being my thesis director. Okay. Um, and so he, like his excitement what, both dumbfounded me, but then also excited me. <laughs> um, and when I was working with him, because, you know, we, we had to come up with a thesis. And at first I was like, oh, I should do something with fiction. And um, I, I had some other fiction stories that I'd written that I kind of I liked a lot. Um, but then I don't know, I was like, do I want to do this or do I want to do like this? And so I sat down with him and I, I told him, I think I want to write a memoir. And he's like, about your Etha. And I said, yes. And he's like, well, it's not going to be easy. Mm. And I was like, okay. And he's like, I'm not kidding. Yasmin. I mean, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And so I was just like, okay, I can do it. I can do mm. it. Yeah. And, and then poor Lex, like six months later, I was in his office crying, like, I don't want to write this anymore. Uh um and he but he was so nurturing he wasn't like never did he tell me like I told you so he yeah. was like it's just this part it's okay it'll be yeah. okay um and so he was just really nurturing to me um and I didn't feel uncomfortable sharing pieces with him so mm -hmm. that is also uh he just he gave me a safe place yeah uh and that's that was so beautiful um so yeah I'm very grateful I don't know if I'm using the term right but like like he's like a beta reader Yes. Yeah. A beta yeah. reader. And then he would like push me in certain mm -hmm. parts. Like you need to do this. And and yeah. then it was interesting because as I mentioned, he didn't speak Spanish very well. And so I, I had to explain like nicknames to him. Like mm -hmm. my grandma called my mom Gorda and he used Google Translate. And he's like, did I get this right? Your grandma calling your mom the facts? Yeah. And so I was like, well, yes, but no. And so he kind of helped me in certain spots because I, you know, I told him my, my grandma cannot speak English. That's like, she spoke English, but she didn't speak English in mm. that she was more comfortable speaking in Spanish. I'm like, I can't have her voice in English. And so um, he just kind of warned me, like, if you're going to try to get this published, it might not be as easy. And I said, okay, that's fine. But this it's not going to be real if I write her in English. Yeah. And so um, he just, you know, guided me and then, but also let me make my decisions about things, um, mm. but just would warn me about hurdles I might encounter later. Right. Have you ever seen the movie Goodwill Hunting? Yes. I'm thinking but it's of been like, a while. I'm thinking of like when he, uh, when you were saying like, oh, he, he was saying, oh, it's going to be hard. And you're like, I know. And he's like, no, 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 it's really going to be hard. It's like um, Robin Williams tells Matt Damon, he says, it's not your fault. And Damon goes, I know. He goes, no, it's oh, not your yes, fault. Remember me. that? Yes, oh, yes, man, yes. right? You're like, no, 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 it's really not your fault. No, 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 it's not going to be not going to be easy. And obviously, I know it wasn't easy for you, but um, you know, the, I mean, you write towards the end of the book, you write about like the the dream, like you dream about your grandmother and your subconscious, and you were like, you know, some people say dreams don't matter. Blah, blah. You're like, no, she was telling me in the dream, "Te quiero." I mean, what an incredible message to get in a dream, right? Yeah, And then, you know, as you had your own mammograms and th thank God everything was fine, but just like that was so, again, haunting and, and, and beautiful and sad where you were like, felt like you were crying for you. It was like you were going through that same um, 
you were going through the same thing that Yurita had gone through when she had it had been, you know, positive for her, positive meaning the opposite of negative with the with x-rays and stuff. And then the dream and like that this heaviness you write, quote unquote heaviness, just about writing the book. And how about the line that really stuck with me so much is that you can't carry her forever. You can't carry her forever. What does that what is what did that mean? What does that mean for you? You know, I think initially it was I was writing stories about her to hang on to memories but it was also I had so much guilt um an incredible mountain of guilt um because I didn't see her for two years before she died because I was too busy working and I I became very resentful for that because I was too busy selling rich people high-priced items and I just felt so shallow and so empty um and so that I that was in there too it was kind of like I, I think part of writing sections of the book was like a penance for me, mm. right? Going back to like my roots, my Catholic roots, it, it was a penance of mm. of not giving her the attention I should have, and then now do doing it now. Um, but in the process, somehow I kind of like realized things. I mean, like you can't you can't stay with your parents or your grandparents forever, um, right? My grandma certainly did it. And so that's something that my mom like reminded me of. And, um, and I think that was her sign to me. Like you have to like close it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You have to stop. Um, and I listened. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, in the dream, right. You were like literally trying to hold her, but she was too heavy. Mm-hmm. Like, man, like, uh, I mean, I know those, I don't know. I speak for myself, but like, feel like those dreams that are like so direct and, not obvious, but are, are are few and far between, right? So when we have them, it's like, whoa. Yeah, because you, I mean, you carry it. Like, I can still remember mm. how I felt waking up from that dream. Yeah, yeah. Um, Tears? For sure, yes. Yeah. I was yeah. I was distraught, and then it was weird because it's like five in the morning, and it's dark, and I'm, and then I'm afraid, to, I felt like a little kid again. I was afraid to, like, open my eyes and look in the dark because yeah. I was afraid, like, she was going to be there. Uh-huh. Um, that kind of, like, visceral dream. Yes. Um. So it, it was heartbreaking for me because it's also, like, I didn't want to let her go at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was definitely hard, but... I don't know. Now that I get to do things like this, I think it's kind of beautiful because she's living on in a way that she never, ever could have imagined. And I think that she finds so much glee in it. Mm-hmm. Um, like this happiness that maybe she didn't find uh, in her own lifetime. Hmm. Wow. That's, that's heavy and, that, and that's deep and, and beautiful. And I hope, uh, you know, I feel like I really got to know her through the book. What a character, what a person. Um and so, you know, thanks so much for sharing about your whole family's, you know, stories and about your grandma. And I mean, this book, this is a, such a good book. It could be like, you know, you could be a, a one book person the rest of your life and it'd be incredible. Do you have future projects though? Um, I do. I, I'm going in a completely different route. Uh, I need a break from memoir. Yeah, I bet. Um, yeah, I, I started writing um, a book. I think it's going to be YA is where it's going. Oh, um, and so it's about a girl who wants to be a rock star. Uh, I was going to say, right about she, Nirvana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or rock star, okay. Well, I mean, there, I'm sure or that Paramore Nirvana will be in there. No, not Paramore. Um, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I hit a nerve, sorry. Sorry, sorry. I'm all, no, oh, no. Sorry, um, sorry. Um, but no, so her name is, uh, her stage name is Lola Coca-Cola for the Kate uh, song. Um, okay, I yes, okay. 
So I'm kind of playing with with this idea and making a soundtrack of her life uh, with each chapter. Mm. So I'm having a lot of fun with it. I had to take a break, obviously, during stuff doing stuff with Ana Leprieta. Um, but my goal, I was supposed to try to finish it last summer, but it didn't work. So this summer <laughs> is it because I, I don't have time to write during the semester when I'm teaching. I bet. It's really hard for me. So I, I write all summer. Do you have a tentative title? Right now, I'm just calling it Lola Coca-Cola. It's probably mm-hmm. going to change. Yeah. Because like the was not the title of the book. What was either. it? No, it was um, it was supposed to be Por Un Amor, which is the song title. It's so from the lyrics. Music. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I, I have a thing with music for sure. <laughs> Last thing before we wrap up, one thing I failed to mention, so cool that you uh, you do a little playlist or whatever throughout the book. You know, I mean, obviously music, you know, scent, smell and music are so closely related to memory. And, you know, I can definitely speak to that. And you just you you wrote about some of those songs that grandma would be listening to when, you know, doing whatever. And you're like, go listen to that right now. And there's one I forget what song it was be like, don't listen to that now. <laughs> <laughs> right. But that was so cool to have that playlist. And then the book, you know, ends with some of her great recipes, too. One of one of the recipes is a. It's not it's it's not caldos cal, caldillo or cal, caldillo. Is that yeah. the same as a caldo? It is, but it's more like a stew, and I think it's okay. like a it's like an El Paso thing because okay. if I say caldillo to um someone like like a Mexican American person from somewhere else, or even if I say caldillo in Mexico, I've never I haven't been to Mexico, but if I said it, I like I don't think it makes sense because uh I've said it to other people like I have a friend from Durango and she was like caldillo. Like caldo, like sopa, and I was like, no. So yeah, I think it's yeah, I think it's like an El Paso thing because you'll see caldillo know. on like menus here. Okay. So it's more stewy, yeah, than soupy. More stewy than soupy. Awesome. Mm-hmm. It was such a pleasure reading the book. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Um, you know, I hope you enjoy the heck out of your like the tour, virtual and in, in, in person. And you know, I hope people listening will will get the book. Um, there's so much about about grief and about there's almost so much beauty in the book too um you know the special relationship with the grandma and grandpa i mean there's nothing like it and so you know thanks for sharing some of this like crazy personal and 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 emotional so you know it's awesome to talk to you too about the the rationales and the, and the background and all that so i just want to wish you great luck in the future and thank you so much talk, for talking to me thank you i had so much fun i feel like we could have stayed on here for hours same oh cool you got another hour and a half let's go <laughs> Let's do it. (laughs) Thanks so much. Take care. Thanks. What a pleasure it's been today to speak with Yasmin Ramirez. Thank you to her so much. And continue good luck to her with her writing. So looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for the podcast by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will Podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills of Will Podcast channel. Sign up now for the Chills of Will Podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash chills at will podcast Peter Real. My last name is spelled R-I-E-H-L. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. Thanks in advance for supporting my one-man show, my DIY podcast, and my extensive reading. 
research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high-quality content. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 165 with Anna Hoagland. She's a psychotherapist in private practice, and her novel, The Long Answer, has been described by Kirkus Reviews as a startling meditation on grief and family and betrayal. This episode will air on February 7th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Yasmin Ramirez, whose work, like Andale Prieta, gives you chills at will. Mm-hmm.